Eyes cool. 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 Welcome to the Eyes Cool podcast. Because Eyes Cool sounds like Eyes Cool. The Eyes Cool podcast is a production of students and faculty of the Information School and the Center for the History of Print and Digital Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Information School or of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm your host, Jonathan Senchin. I'm a professor in the UW-Madison High School and also director of the Center for the History of Print and Digital Culture. We are now available to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and elsewhere. Please subscribe to make sure our episodes are delivered to you. Tell your family and friends to look us up. Rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts in particular makes it easier for other listeners to find us. This week on the podcast, we begin a multi-episode focus on the social media industry and democracy, including questions of disinformation, the destabilization of institutions, monopolies on data, and content moderation. We'll hear from students in the UW-Madison Master's in Library and Information Studies program as they explore important topics in the field. This episode has three segments. The first and longest is a group discussion of Professor Siva Badianathan's recent book, Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy. That's followed by a look at Facebook in the news, which happens a lot lately with Mark Zuckerberg on Capitol Hill. And finally, an interview with iSchool Associate Lecturer Rebecca Van Dan about her teaching here and her background in youth services librarianship. Now, on to Siva Vadianathan's anti-social media, how Facebook disconnects us and undermines democracy. Something of a program note, or more accurately, a personal reflection from your pod narrator. I first taught this book in the fall of 2018, and students overwhelmingly wanted to discuss whether or not they should delete their personal Facebook and Instagram accounts. As an aside, on balance, it seemed Facebook would be much easier to drop than Insta. But at the time, there was little to no traction in class for the solutions that Vadianathan and another author we were reading at the time, Jonathan Taplin, were arguing for. Specifically, that social media and data monopolies should be regulated and possibly broken up if found to be monopolies. Last autumn, students thought structural intervention was as unlikely to happen as pigs flying and looked inward on their own accounts and habits and consumption instead. Only a year later, regulation and antitrust questions are being discussed in the halls of Congress and make up popular pieces of leading 2020 presidential campaign platforms. It's really been remarkable to observe how quickly the zeitgeist and the political will changes. From here, we'll listen to our first segment, which is current students talking about Vadianathan's book. And to lead us into that, here's Vadianathan writing in Slate. Zuckerberg and Sandberg can't fix Facebook because to fix Facebook is to scrap one or more of its essential attributes. The problem with Facebook is Facebook. We are stuck in the world Facebook has made. It was a terrible idea in the first place, but as long as advertisers and authoritarians protect it, Facebook will face little significant pressure in most of the world. All Zuckerberg and Sandberg need to do is ride out this moment, boast about making a good effort to clean the thing up, and keep those campaign contributions flowing. Facebook will be just fine. Democracy will not.
Hello everyone out there and welcome to the main segment of the iSchool podcast. Today we'll be discussing Siva Vadyanathan's book Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy. Before we, be- we begin our discussion, let's introduce our panel for today. As we introduce ourselves, we'll also mention whether or not we have a Facebook atta- account and why or why not. Would anybody like to introduce themselves first? I'm Emma. I'm a first year student here at the iSchool and I'm in the DIA concentration. I used to have a Facebook. I don't anymore. I think I had one about between my sophomore year of high school and sophomore year of college, probably. And I eventually deleted it after the 2016 election because there's just so much negativity and hate. And it was just upsetting to log into and kind of a waste of time if I wasn't getting anything out of it. So I no longer have a Facebook. I do have an Instagram, though. So, like, same company. I don't know if that makes it better or worse. Um, I'm Anna, and I am a first-year student as well, and I'm interested in public libraries. Um, I do have a Facebook. I rarely log on. And why do I have a Facebook? Mostly to catch up with friends um, that I've lost contact with, or um, I also used it in college to help um, run pages that I was a part of their clubs. Hi, I'm Esther. Um, I'm a first year iSchool student. I don't have a concentration yet. Um, I had a Facebook account for maybe a couple months in high school. Um, My sisters made me sign up and then also I just wanted to play Farmville. (laughs) Um, But I'm also a pretty reserved private person so um, Facebook wasn't really very appealing to me. Um, I don't think, yeah, I don't think I ever made a single post. Um, I've always, I've also always thought that there were more negatives, um, than positives to social media, um, in, for different reasons other than what our author argues throughout the book. Um, some of it's similar, but, um, I always, my issues were, he talks about how the issues are more nefarious political issues, um, privacy issues, um, when my problems with Facebook and social media were more, um, just the negatives of encouraging individuals to care more about kind of more shallow um, and material things um, and how that can kind of help that can kind of lead to corrosion of society. Okay and back to me I'm Jason I'm a first year iSchool student I also have no concentration I actually technically have two Facebook accounts I forgot the password of the first one (laughs) so that's why I made the second one But I don't really check any of them habitually. It's been years since I actually logged on. Um, As for why they're there, pretty much just because the second one I actually only made because I needed to do it for a project. And after that, I just completely didn't do anything with it. It has no profile picture. It has no anything. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty much a ghost account. (laughs) That's the thing, though. It's... It's either, like, to find roommates or, you know, follow, like you said, social media for your group, yeah, for a exactly. club, or group Sometimes projects. it's the only yeah. way to find yeah. out now. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and you don't, I mean, there's no investment there. Like, there's no personal investment there. Like, I'm not invested in that account. I mean, it has my name on it, but honestly, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's just kind of there. But, uh, now that we've introduced our panel for today, let's uh, let's go ahead and introduce the book. So Siva Vadyanathan's 2018 work, Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy, takes a critical look at social media and the tech industry in general, and Facebook in particular. More specifically, the book takes the stance that Facebook, through its stated purpose and the systems that it has in place, creates a social environment in which democracy and debate is no longer possible. Okay, so... Let's go ahead and open the floor to our main discussion. Anybody who has a specific passage or theme from the book that they want to discuss, that they found interesting or interesting or whatever, uh, they can go on right ahead. Well, I think that that last sentence that we said in the introduction just now um, about creating a social environment in which democracy and debate is no longer possible, um, that really brings in the idea of the filter bubble, where you're... Well, I'll just go ahead and read the passage that I thought was relevant to this from our author. So filter bubbles distance us from those who differ from us or generally disagree with us, while the bias towards sensationalism and propagandistic content undermines trust. 
In these ways, Facebook makes it harder for diverse groups of people to gather to conduct calm, informed, productive conversations. Um, and he kind of talks about how it's declaration versus deliberation. So it's just the structure of Facebook and posts. Um, it's so much easier to say, I am, I believe this, and not really open it up for a conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with how Facebook operates, you're not going to see what other people think, or you're not going to see the opposition um, unless you purposely seek that out. Unless you get into like a little battle on, in the comment section <laughs> or something, and then, yeah. Uh, I was just about to say, the only time where I see like that happen is when it's like family members with opposing political <laughs> viewpoints, and then they just get into comment wars on Facebook, and you just want to turn off the screen. Yeah. Or it's really strange when, I mean, I feel like that's such a thing on the internet too, like not even Facebook, just anything <laughs> where there's a blog or any any area for comment, you just get in fights with random strangers. And like once you get into it, you can't, it's just a black hole. It's like there's no going back and there's no winning. Mm-hmm. And Siva says in the book, Facebook in particular does not foster conversation they favor declaration. They do not allow for deep deliberation. They spark shallow reaction. Yeah, I think he called it, um, like, I think he uh, referred to it as to, like forming tribes, just like camps of people who are like, kind of only interacting with one another. They don't really see anything that from any other viewpoint, so they just wind up kind of reinforcing each other until um, there's not really any room for any other opinion or dissent or anything like that. Yeah. That just creates a lot of polarization then. It's not really a platform where you can like cite your sources for stuff that is actual fact. Like vaccinations, I think he talks about in the book. And that's like a huge debate on social media sometimes. And there's actual science there, but there's no there's no bibliography on a Facebook post. And that kind of gets into um, one of the things he was talking about with political ads showing up on Facebook. And uh he mentioned one specifically where talking about uh, the Pope endorsing Trump for yeah. president. That was like completely false, but there's not really a way to screen that out. There's not really, really a way to know. And it just, it'll circulate among the people who think that, who support that sort of thing or who support that idea. Yeah, the filter bubble, I mean, it's kind of just like comfort, like, extreme confirmation bias where you're only seeing the same am i using that correctly you're only seeing the same information Um, i mean it it caters to the information that you want to see based on what you're interested in and what you what pages you like Mm -hmm. um so yeah it filters the idea the filter bubble is just filtering out opposing views so even if so even if you were to be even if facebook were to be a good platform for discussion it's not a good platform for seeing other viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of ironic because uh, Anathan also talks a lot about uh, the the vision behind Facebook, how it was supposed to connect people and like open them up to new perspectives and that sort of thing. But the way it's programmed, it doesn't do that at all. It actually does pretty much the exact opposite. Uh, like we were talking about with the filter, filter bubble, you don't really see other people's viewpoints. You just see the ones that you want to see, basically which is actually, it, it's very odd how it, how it became the opposite of what the original intent was to me. Um. Well, it's hard, too, because, um, like, should you have, like, I feel like he, our author goes, Vadianathan goes into this saying, you know, yeah, I should be able to like the Red Sox page or this type, this species of dog or whatever, breed of dog. But giving so much freedom to liking whatever um like it's good for following your interests but yeah again it's hard because is there such thing as too much freedom on facebook or and i think ultimately it makes it harder for facebook and by some extension companies to be able to market to you when they don't have when they have um you have too broad of categories. They, they want to see things that 
are very specific so then they can cater exactly to what you want. It's like one of those, um, you know, you, you click, you click agree without reading a single word (laughs) 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 at the beginning of signing up for something. So, I mean, you're signing away all your discretion and what information you want to let this company profit off from you, but you don't really care because you're not going to read through it. (laughs) And sometimes it's not transparent either. Right. Either. Yeah, even if you were to read it. Bill, and now your information is stuck in a cloud somewhere. Yeah, I actually thought that was really creepy that like you could just play innocently play know, a Facebook game and then like yeah. all of a sudden it just accesses a bunch of information that it doesn't even need yeah. like for you to play the game. And I mean it just doesn't tell you. It doesn't tell you that at all. It doesn't tell you what happens to that information. Mm-hmm. Um or even your, the worst part I thought about was that was even your friends on Facebook, their data yeah. is mine too. Yeah, that's even creepier because, I mean, even, I imagine it's like if you look in like the Farmville Terms of Service yeah, or something, it might be in there, but I have no idea like if it tells you that your friend's stuff is mined as well or anything like that. And mm-hmm. I mean, let's be honest, people don't read Terms of Service. No. <laughs> They're long documents, people have things to do. They want to play Farmville. (laughs) Most of us aren't lawyers, so we don't know what it means anyway. (laughs) Also, uh, this sort of connects to what Buddy and Nathan has to say about uh, Facebook friends and how that's more of a... Only on Facebook are you like friends Mm -hmm. with everybody that you're connected to. It's... um, it's, he, he describes the difference between like actual friendship and Facebook friendship. For Facebook friendship, you're friends with everybody, you're labeled as a friend, but that's not really how real friendship works. Um, here's a quote. Uh, Whether Aristotle has accurately described the taxonomy of friendship is irrelevant for examination of Facebook. What Aristotle gets right is that there are taxonomies of friendships. We do relate to different friends in different ways along different terms. And Facebook, uh, this is me speaking now, Facebook doesn't really distinguish between that. It doesn't... Friendship is a lot more complicated than Facebook makes it out to be. Well, even throughout his book, he distinguishes a Facebook friend with a capital F because it it really is something totally different. It's not what you would just write as your, oh, this is my friend. It's it's sometimes more meaningful where it is in the true sense of a type of friend. But more often than not, it's someone you probably have never met in your life <laughs> or just very briefly yeah. back when I was still using Facebook I mean I'd friend people that I knew like I'd, I tried to stick to people that I knew I didn't friend people that I didn't know but even then it was like I had a class with them once my freshman year of high school and I remember their face so I hit <laughs> I hit accept the friend request so yeah it's it's not really anything like actually connecting with somebody yeah and I think that Buddy Nathan makes a pretty uh, strong argument in there that the Facebook creators should have had a little bit more thought and education um, behind what they were doing um, with Facebook and the friending process. I know he specifically talked about how Sheryl Sandberg definitely did not know anything about Aristotle <laughs> and his different forms of friendship or her, his different forms of friendship before um, she was making decisions as a C or C C O O yeah important yeah <laughs> she was up there. Um, one of the things that I wanted to mention it's a very short line but uh i'll just read it right here how young people manage their reputations within various contexts has been the subject of much poorly conducted debate in recent years um i thought that was really interesting because uh young well young people and how they manage their social media accounts does that speak to a kind of like i guess evolution of society where we get used to having uh, this kind of surveillance we get used to being on social media to the point where uh some maybe some of the issues that body and nothing talks about aren't as much of a concern do you think that's kind of happening or i think that part of that goes back to esther's point about like shallow interaction and i think a lot of 
the time the profile we create online isn't necessarily who we are in real life. But I think that what Vadianathan is arguing is that doesn't matter as much when Facebook is watching everything you do. They're watching how far you scroll down the page, what articles you're clicking on. So it doesn't matter necessarily what you're presenting to your peers as much as what's happening behind the scenes because they don't need the outward picture to create a profile on you. They already have one. And he, I mean, he talks about the the cryptopticon, yeah. um, which is basically just this huge mm-hmm. network, underground network, or not underground, just kind of invisible network where pretty much everything we do online, it's like, I mean, there's always browsing cookies and like everything is somehow surveilled um, and it's we're used to it now. Um, I, I remember in one of my poli-sci classes from my undergrad, my professor was talking about kind of different generations of different political generations. Um, so like the boom, um, what it, baby boomers after yeah. World War II, um, they have pretty distinct characteristics of their generation. Um, and one of the, in political science, one of the more um, recent generations is demarcated by 9-11 actually because we're more used to just signing away our privacy rights now. Um, good or bad, it's just something that we're not used to saying, oh yeah, I'm not going to read the terms of service because who cares? <laughs> we're always just used to like the internet tracking what you're doing. Um, but yeah, to explain more, I guess the um, to compare, he was talking about um, Bentham's panopticon. What is it? Um, yeah, panopticon. Panopticon, um, where your behavior is controlled by the fact that you're aware that you're being surveilled, versus we're now just always someone. Or you know, Facebook it can surveil you all the time, and you're just used to it, so it doesn't change your behavior. Which in some ways is actually worse because if there was something that you wanted to keep to yourself privately, I mean, now that's revealed, somebody knows about it somewhere, it's probably stored in some third party server and you have no idea where and you don't have any control over that. I like the whole internet is forever kind of idea. Yeah, I remember him mentioning in the book that there was um, a service on Facebook that they took down which was sharing what you were buying with your friends, which is interesting. I never encountered that, but... Yeah, I didn't either. That's creepy. (laughs) I mean, if I'm honest, I would just tell my friends if I wanted them to know exactly what I was buying. Yeah, and especially when we go back to the definition of what friends are, your Facebook friends are not necessarily people you want knowing what you're buying. Yeah. If you have no personal connection with them. And that goes, that reminds me too of our, just like the extreme violations of privacy that Facebook is sort of notorious for. Um, Emma was talking before our segment about um, revenge porn. Um, so, I don't, sure, segment? go ahead. Okay, so on page 75, Badianathan says As a response to revenge porn, Facebook launched an experiment in late 2017 in Australia. Users who feared they might become victims of revenge porn were encouraged to send nude photos of themselves to Facebook. Facebook employees would examine those images and feed them into a computer to create a unique digital signature for each image. An algorithm deploying artificial intelligence could scan and match the offending images with those others upload to Facebook. Facebook would store the images for a short period. Facebook did not declare how short that period would be before deleting the original image but retaining the fingerprint. And I guess what we were saying was that was super weird. <laughs> like, if you're afraid there's new pictures of you that are going to be online, like, they're telling you, oh, upload <laughs> new pictures of yourself Yeah, online. I was going to say, that sounds exactly like how you make revenge porn. Like, mm-hmm. how that actually happens. Or so. it gets into the wrong, even if yeah. it does have it, and like it gets into the wrong hands. Because yeah, I mean, you don't know yeah, they're... They could get leaked, too. Yeah, so. I was just going to say, you don't know... Facebook is not super transparent, so you don't know who has control over those images. And yeah. you just said they don't. You don't even know how long they retain them. Yeah. And now there's a huge file. <laughs> yeah. But and I people can. are aware of it <laughs> as well because they've made a public message for people to send it in. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you could just. I, don't, I mean, 
a hacker could <laughs> I don't know how it works, but I mean maybe No, it's it's possible. Just the, just the idea that you could suggest that as a solution is pretty just crazy. it's pretty crazy, yeah. Like I think he goes on to say this Australian revenge porn experiment highlights the central problem with Facebook's approach to the dark and cruel things people do to each other. Those who have been victimized or fear being victimized by revenge porn are often traumatized, yet the company is willing to ask those very victims to engage in the most intimate ways with a system that they have no reason to trust and people they will never meet or know. That seems like too large a burden to place on those who have already... I just lost my point. Like someone documenting that. Um, that seems like too large a burden to place on those who have already paid too high a price for these... Say that word, <laughs> yeah. Systems of surveillance. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to say to that other than other than yeah. I mean, to be blunt, I I feel like it's kind of creepy. That's <laughs> super creepy. I think. Um, I guess that just it kind of goes back to um, just that the idea of Facebook and. Mark Zuckerberg's vision for it, and the whole time I'm reading through this book, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about just human nature. Maybe I'm more cynical um, than Vadyanathan, but sometimes I, as I was going through the book, I was almost wondering, you know, like, is Facebook a symptom of human nature where any communication, any widespread, widespread communication system, are we just going to abuse it and do negative things, or, I mean, is it, is Facebook driving us to act negatively because of its structure? That's I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a hard question yeah. to answer, honestly. I um, mean... I mean, even with, like, things like telephones, I mean, you got things like prank calls and that sort of thing. So, right. And, I mean, I don't know if anybody, like, sent prank messages over telegraphs. I'm pretty sure they probably <laughs> did. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if they did, but I think that just comes along with um well and that kind of goes back to he also talks about how um like for the arab spring um revolution and stuff where facebook um kind of tried to or some people attributed this the success or lack thereof of this revolution to facebook and how people were able to mobilize because of it but really, when you look back on it, it's like, well, I mean, it was just people use communication to do oh a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Like there can be positive things or really negative things like um, in the Philippines where they were using it to monitor their citizens more and um, undermine their ability to mobilize against more corrupt governments. Mm-hmm. And going back to the idea of like mobilizing people and communicating like People, I mean, Buddy and Nathan kind of mentioned that people use the tools that they have. So it was more like Facebook just happened to be something that they could use, yeah. something that was e- relatively easily accessible than mm-hmm. uh, than other things. It's like um, it's like people in in like in class in high school classes, like passing like people used to pass notes. People send tes- text messages mm-hmm. now. I mean, it's easier that way. Yeah, but the problem is, is when they try to attribute the success of a certain political movement to their Just, platform. Yeah. The because they're fighting, they're, like, like Fadi Nathan mentions later in the book, they're fighting mm-hmm. to become, what is it, the system, like... The operating the, system of our lives. Yeah, the operating system of our lives, yeah. Yeah, so that everything that we do has to kind of go through Facebook or Google yes. or some other big tech company. Yep. And I think that goes a lot along with the example of the internet.org um, and how Mark Zuckerberg and everyone else at Facebook kind of was funneling their the use of Facebook itself to get all information. Controlling their version of the internet yeah. through just Facebook, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, on the surface, it looks like, I mean, oh, yeah, I mean, it's great. They're, they're connected to the Internet now. And, I mean, I guess that could open some doors for them, maybe give them some opportunities. But at the same time, that's all through Facebook. Facebook is it's a company that makes profit. It's mm-hmm. for profit. It's a company that 
exist to make money, at least to some degree. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... And, like, I don't think that was mentioned, this was mentioned in the book, but it might be self-explanatory that um, when people did use that service, they obviously had to sign up for a Facebook account. So, obviously, they're tracking all that data as well. Um, yeah, so it definitely wasn't just totally selfless. They're no. getting, yeah. <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> they're definitely getting something out of it. Um, and then when something went wrong... Um, they also did just decide to pull out of certain countries. Because what was it in India? Um, I think they're mm-hmm. one of their powerful political parties kind of started abusing it and trying to undermine um, the people. And then there was quite a bit of backlash against having it, having internet.org yeah. at all. And, and the fact that uh, Body and Nothing doesn't specifically touch on this, but the fact that uh, it's tied to one specific company and they can just pull out like that, anybody who like comes to like, depend on that for whatever reason, I mean, if Facebook pulls out, they're just, they can't do they're whatever they need to yeah. do anymore. Yeah, so, exactly. I mean, that just kind of, that screws people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we're running a little short on time, but I, I did want to talk about one more thing. Um, Varianathan talks about how news organizations are influenced by Facebook, um, where we get, I mean, our information about the world, pretty much. Uh, here's a quote. To sum up, news organizations are compelled to make editorial, choice, editorial choices, which stories to cover, how to craft headlines, whether to favor video over photos or text, to pander to Instagram or Facebook's algorithms, because they can't afford to be invisible on Facebook or Instagram. So... In a way, Facebook is very much controlling what we see, even through news outlets that uh, used to be considered, at the very least, uh, reputable sources, Mm -hmm. because they have to pander to the way Facebook does things. Otherwise, they won't get money for publishing their articles. That goes back to just the broader idea of undermining democracy, too, that you can't, you don't have as educated a populace for voting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have people that can manipulate what you see to get them to vote. Yeah, it's just an attention, like he says, an attention economy. Yeah, and it all, and that all pretty much ties back into the filter bubble, where mm-hmm. I mean, everything's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> everything you see, you see what you like, you see things that you look similar to what you've looked at before, and it just kind of builds on itself until people are just in those tight groups. Yeah. Like if you pull up Fox News and CNN side by side on your computer, it's like you're living in two different countries. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to, because I feel like um, it's another thing that it's hard to, it's hard to think about because again, is Facebook, is that the fault of Facebook or is this something that we would like, because we tend to self-sort anyway. Yeah. Like, we had issues with our political system before Facebook or any social media. Yeah. Um, but it's hard because it's kind of just exacerbating these issues. And I think that the, the instant communication and the instant feedback mm-hmm. is part of the problem. Yeah. We're constantly... They constantly want you to keep scrolling and... Reacting Keep reacting... on an emotional basis, like he said. Yeah, I mean, with Facebook, there isn't really enough time to, like, yeah, maybe you might react emotionally to something, but uh, under a regular situation, you'd probably have time to get over that emotional reaction and then maybe sit down and think about it. uh, Talk about it. Talk about it. (laughs) There's something vastly different between having a, you know, like we were talking about, like a little comments section battle versus sitting down and talking to someone face-to-face because you're going to recognize that person's humanity a lot more easily, obviously, um, than just, oh, it's just some random person on the internet. I can treat them however I want. Or I can, you know, use whatever facts I want from wherever I found it. Facts and quotes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, um, we're pretty much running out of time, uh, so we'll put, we'll have to end our discussion here. Uh, did anybody else have any last comments or? Do we, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> go ahead. 
Um, so in the show notes below, we're going to link some of Vadianathan's talks um, that he's given about the book in the past. So if you would like to hear his take on things, uh, please feel free to look at that. They'll be linked below. Or you could get the book. Yeah, that works too. Read it. It's pretty. It's a quick read, and it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's about it. Thank you, everybody out there, for joining us here on the Eyes Cold Podcast. Next up, current events. We dive deeper into how we're talking about Facebook's algorithms today. Okay, so today we are going to talk about, in our current events section, uh, Facebook and its algorithms and the consequences um, and outcomes of uh, Facebook using these algorithms. Uh, My name is Caitlin Taft. I'm Brianna Weiss. I'm Jasmine Sunderlich. And so the specific article that we wanted to talk about is from a site called TechCrunch.com. It's by John Evans, and the title is Facebook Isn't Free Speech, It's Algorithmic Amplification Optimized for Outrage. Um, So I just want to read like a little snippet from this um, before we start our conversation. So the article says, what people actually read on Facebook is what's in their newsfeed, and its contents in turn are determined not by giving everyone an equal voice and not by a strict chronological timeline. What you read on Facebook is determined entirely by Facebook's algorithm, which elides much, censors much, if you wrongly think the newsfeed is free speech, and amplifies little. What is amplified? Two forms of content. For native content, the algorithm optimizes for engagement. This in turn means people spend more time on Facebook, and therefore more time in the company of that other form of content which is amplified, paid advertising. Of course, this isn't absolute. As Zuckerberg notes in his speech, Facebook works to stop things like hoaxes and medical misinformation from going viral, even if they're otherwise anointed by the algorithm. But he has specifically decided that Facebook will not attempt to stop paid political misinformation from going viral. So this like really relates to um, some of the first books we read, um, both Algorithms of Oppression and Race After Technology, just talking about the idea that even though everyone can like post anything they want on Facebook. That's not what is going to be like driven to the top of people's timelines in, you know, when it comes down to it, Facebook makes its money by advertising and you can get more advertisements to go into someone's brain if they're spending a bunch of time on there. And the best way to do it is through like stuff that's really like partisan and outrageous and yeah, if you're, if you're mad, you're going to want to stay on it. You're going to want to yeah. read more. Um, you're going to want to find out more about stuff. Um, but then if it's not, if, if you don't know how Facebook is directing you to these things by its algorithms, then you're not really able to evaluate, like, is this actual real information? Um, or is this something that it's just an agenda that it's trying to, like, push me towards? Yeah, this um, YouTube's algorithm is actually really similar it wants you to spend like it's the algorithm is to make you spend the most time on there and it's actually been a really big issue of sending people down like these like white supremacist rabbit holes and all these conspiracy theories because those are the things that are just like the most outrageous and make you spend the most time on there and the way they like form all this kind of stuff is like they present it as factual and correct and Mm -hmm. maybe use the misinformation and different like statistics quote-unquote um, to kind of draw you in and make you believe it's true, but it would involve actually looking it up yeah. and like taking initiative yourself to be sure that that is actually true yeah. and following those sources because oftentimes it's not. It's Yeah, and that's like the scary thing with Facebook now that we're learning is that, you know, they are, they say that they're trying to do like this fact checking and they're trying to prevent hoaxes and things, but they also won't do anything about like paid advertising because they don't want to lose that money. And so when like political campaigns or candidates or things like they seem like they're legitimate like that's something where if you're you know if you're telling people how to have you know online literacy it's like go back to the original source like who said that but if they are allowed to just lie and say whatever they want to but it's coming from a legitimate source if it's coming from the president's campaign you know you think 
or people will think like that's something that I can believe um, and that's not necessarily the case and Facebook has no interest in stopping that and honestly has kind of an interest in amplifying that more because then that leads to more advertising money, more time, more engagement. Um, and, and that's kind of scary. Yeah, and like the article was saying like, oh, they're like not, they're trying to stop hoaxes and medical misinformation, but you know, when it comes to pe- paid political in- misinformation, like hands off, like we're not gonna really do anything about that. Like, what is that saying? Like, yeah. what powers are you trying to push if you're not going to dispute misinformation on political standpoints. Yeah, and that really ties into our book for this week where it really is, you know, talking about the ways that Facebook is driving these like larger social issues with like our very democracy of, you know, it's eroding the people's confidence in democracy and it's eroding people's ability to participate in democracy. Um, And that's just like kind of terrifying to think that this one website that started out as a way to like get girls to date Mark Zuckerberg like now suddenly is like taking down the like the US government like that's a huge unintended consequence of algorithms gone like wild really yeah definitely shows the issues when you are trying to see optimize them. you know optimize making money over mm-hmm. anything else yeah um so I was listening to a podcast. I think it was Pod Save the World. Don't quote me on that. But um, and they were kind of talking about um, how there was like these new advertisements that had gone up on Facebook that were like state sponsored and that were like spreading misinformation about like the 2020 campaign. And they were like taken down and all this. And the hosts get to their conversation and basically it ends with oh, we should just, like, take the computers away from the boomers. That's how we solve this. And it was, I mean, it was funny. I'll give them that. But they didn't dig any deeper into solutions, which makes me think that that's really what they want to do, which is not not at all a solution if you want to, like, talk about this issue seriously. And that just, like, especially hit a nerve as a future librarian because, you know, immediately when I hear that, of course, I giggle at first. And then it's like, well, isn't the answer just teaching everyone online literacy. I know that, um, so I'm 22, so when I was in, um, so I grew up with the internet and everything, and I remember, like, librarians in, like, middle school would teach us online literacy, basically. So it's like, you know, what websites can you trust? Like, a .com means it's commercial. Anyone can pay for it and put up whatever content they want, whereas .gov comes from the government. .edu is affiliated with a school. So, like, I was taught this online literacy that like people in like the boomer generation unfortunately didn't learn in school yeah they just have to kind of learn it themselves and figure out as they go along but that's Mm -hmm. like a huge place for like librarians and information professionals to step in Mm -hmm. because they are still engaging with people outside of school um and so they can kind of guide people to you know here's how you look up credible sources here's how you know if information is correct or not um, and, you know, try to teach people to be kind of skeptical of what they find on the internet because it's so easy to just have all of your biases confirmed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really encouraging people to think critically about the stuff that they're looking at. And even if it feels right to you because it seems like that goes along with like what you already believed, like you need to maybe check some other sources or look into other places um, and just trying to encourage people to do that. Yeah, and, like, of course you can't get everyone, you know, you encounter in a library to, like, read something like Algorithms of Oppression or, like, Race After Technology, but you can explain to them, like, hey, you know, that Facebook is, its bottom line is to make money and make you spend time on the website and help them understand that the information they see is a product of that. So just, I don't know, I think, like, that's, this is obviously, like, a huge, broad societal issue, but... You know, we as like future information professionals can help mitigate this problem, like in our own small way. And I think it's just a matter of really helping everyone that we encounter to have better online literacy. I mean, that's a big part of what we talk about when we're in class and we're discussing, like, oh, like what we do for the public when mm-hmm. working as librarians mm-hmm. or information advocates. Um, because it, one of the top examples of like what we do for the community are these classes involving internet and like computer literacy um because it is such an important and like um 
uh, relative? Relevant? Relevant. Relevant. Yes. Relevant (laughs) um, situation, especially now as we get into more technology and it just gets stronger. Yeah. I guess we're just here to say we need to teach online literacy. Yes. Yes. That's as, you know, if you're any kind of information professional, librarian, um, IT professional, anything, just, you know, focusing really hard on teaching people not just how to find information, but how the information is being presented to them um, and how to evaluate that information um, is going to be huge, really, to just kind of like keep our society together in the next, you know, 10, 15 years as we go forward. Because with Benjamin posing, um, do we abstain, that kind of question, abstaining won't really solve anything. Um, it's just yeah. going to make it worse because the more you ignore it, the stronger like those who are getting this information are going to get. Yeah. So like mm-hmm. we definitely do need to do more like teaching on like literacy and all that stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> In our last segment. A look at what is happening around the iSchool at UW-Madison. iSchool Associate Lecturer Rebecca Van Dam talks about her teaching and background in youth services and public libraries. Welcome back to the iSchool podcast. For this week's iSchool segment, we'll be interviewing Rebecca Van Dam, an Associate Lecturer at UW-Madison's iSchool. Uh, my name is Rebecca Van Dam. Um, I'm currently an uh, Associate Lecturer for the UW, um, but I worked for 20 years as head of youth services at the Middleton Public Library. So that leads us right into our first question, uh, and we're wondering how your years of experience as a youth services coordinator has impacted your career here at Madison and like teaching in general. Sure. Um, I think it's the main reason I was hired is that I've, I've got a lot of experience in different areas. Um, I, I, I did go to school here as well, and I think that was a big reason why I wanted to come back and help the students here, um, give them practical experience. I felt like when I was in school, we didn't have a lot of practical experienced people that could give us ideas what we would face. Um, and in fact, I, I'm so happy to see that intellectual freedom is covered here so in depth, as that's something that I didn't have at all in school. Yeah. <laughs> and I, that was one of my main concerns when I left here. Was, how, how, how would I handle these challenges? So. so also kind of tying into your time as a youth services librarian, is there something that you learned while working with teens that you find that you're able to apply throughout your life? Maybe a skill you picked up that works Ooh. with all age ranges? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have to say that I was always terrified of public speaking, ironically enough. <laughs> um, but it wasn't until I started working with teens and doing book talks that I, I realized that they weren't really listening to me as a person. They were listening to the information I was giving, mm-hmm. and they were excited about the books. And so that really like helped me as a speaker, like think more about the ideas rather than me presenting it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was definitely a skill that I learned from them. Um, but, but also, I, I feel like they are just so full of ideas and energy and enthusiasm, and they're right on the cusp of every great new idea. So I really loved having teen advisory committee meetings, hearing what programs that they wanted to have and what their interests were. Um, I, I just love that energy and enthusiasm. So. This week for our podcast, the book that we're reading is uh, Antisocial Media. Uh, which made me want to ask about your experience with teens on social media, because lately a lot of people have been kind of nagging teens or saying that all of the social media is bad for them, for their development, and I was just wondering what your experience with teens on social media was and your thoughts on that. Oof. That's, that's, that's <laughs> it's a, a big com- question. Yeah, that is a complicated <laughs> question. Um, I have to say that um, I, I really thought that more teens would be into Facebook when I started, mm-hmm. and they, they really told me that that wasn't a platform that they liked to use, and they didn't like a lot of the, the issues that were surrounding that, their privacy issues and um, Mark Zuckerberg and yeah. <laughs> the whole thing, uh, which I definitely appreciate. Um, so we, we actually moved more towards Instagram mm-hmm. um, to promote programs, and we had like teens take over Instagram. and. Um, those sort of things. I, I, I mean, I, I feel like there's going to be issues with social media no matter what, 
and like things coming back to haunt you. Um, and I feel like the teen brain development at that time is, is going to be that they're going to be taking more risks. And is that something that you want haunting you for the rest of your life? I, I do yeah. feel like there should be more control over <laughs> what you post and how, if you can erase it. Um, so, yeah, yeah, there's definitely issues. But, I, I mean, the, the benefit is, is that it is a social space for people that are a little bit shyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I definitely see, saw... Um, some kids in my teen advisory that met up and became friends and they shared a lot more socially online because they were just yeah. more comfortable writing than they were talking in person. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite part of being a youth services librarian? Ooh, programming. Just having the creative freedom to, to do all these amazing programs, knowing that they were helping with um, certain aspects of development. Um, their meeting team needs. We, we were like having them come in and, and plan the programs and finding the exact programs they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just great for me. I mean, I love doing that. I, I love teen books too, and I, I like doing readers' advisory, um, being able to promote great new books that maybe some people hadn't heard of. I feel like there's always like five or six that are promoted every year, but there's so many more that are well written and really deserve mm-hmm. to be explored. So. Do you have any book recommendations for us? They can oh. be YA, they can be adult, they can be picture books, anything oh, you're excited man. about. Um, there's so many. One of, one of my favorites of all mm-hmm. time is I'll Give You the Sun. Mm. Um, it, it's just a really interesting story of a, um, twins, a boy and a girl, fraternal twins, um, that tell a story. One tells a story when they're 14 and one when they're 16, oh. and their lives have completely changed in the meantime, and it's kind of interesting mystery but there's also elements of they're, they're both really into art and one drops it so it's kind of interesting to figure out why they dropped it there's some supernatural elements it <laughs> just has everything into it um but oh uh, my gosh i could give you one for every genre <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah cool. awesome. well thank you sure there are all our questions okay. <laughs> and that is the end of Season 1, Episode 5 of the Eyes Cool Podcast. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week, continuing our focus on the social media industry with a discussion of Sarah Roberts' brand new book from Yale University Press, Behind the Screen, Content Moderation in the Shadows of Social Media. Thank you for listening to the Eyes Cool Podcast, because Eyes Cool... Sounds like high school.